Let's take our Bibles, please, and join me in the, God, in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. If you're just joining with us today, either here or online, we are in a series that's talking about what will the future hold, and we've been going through a wide variety of different topics. As we prepared, I came across a silly story about an individual who, uh, this guy, wasn't real bright. What happened is Friday comes and the end of the work week, he decides that he's going to go and join some of his buddies who at work invited him at the last minute, come up to our hunting cabin and join us for the weekend. We have all the gear you need, you can just join us and we'll just have a grand old time. So the guy didn't even call his wife, he just went up to the hunting cabin. Didn't show up Friday night, didn't contact her Saturday. Come Sunday, he all of a sudden walks in the door like nothing had happened. Well, she didn't think that it was a nothing. She gave him every bit of her mind. She's yelling and screaming and yelling and screaming and threatening him. And finally, after about an hour of that, she pauses as he just sits there with a silly smirk on his face. And she walked right down in his face and she says, how would you like it if all of a sudden you couldn't see me for three days or four? He just smiled and said, that'd be nice. (laughs) Well, he didn't see her all day Monday. He didn't see her all day Tuesday. He didn't see her all day Wednesday. And Thursday, the swelling started to go down so you could see out of just one of his eyes. Now, okay, now Jesus wants us to see clearly. He isn't angry with us. He isn't all upset with us. He wants us, even though sometimes we goof things up, the Lord wants us to see clearly what he has planned for the future. And we've been talking about some of the events that the Lord has planned for the future. We've talked about the rapture is going to be the next event, followed by the tribulation, followed by Jesus Christ coming down to earth physically. And when he comes down to earth physically, that's where we've been talking the last couple of weeks is what happens next. The Bible indicates that there's a millennium where Jesus will physically rule and reign here upon the earth and he will have this kingdom here and this kingdom will be in this perfect environment. It's described in Revelation chapter 20. We start, just follow along as I start reading in part of this text to remind us where we've been at. It says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hands and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil. Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. After that he must be loosed for a little season. I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And blessed is holy, and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of, Christ, of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. The thousand years is mentioned several times. It's a reality. It's not a figment. It's not exaggerated. It's not symbolic. There's going to be a thousand-year kingdom. And Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. And those who are part of it are those who are in the first resurrection, which tonight I'll explain what we mean by the first resurrection, second resurrection, what our bodies will be like, and what happens at that time. But what we want to just mention this morning is we've talked about part of this, what happens during the thousand years. The very first event that you read about as you followed along was in verses 1, 2, and 3. It is the removal of Satan. 
In that text that we already read, it says that Satan is going to be bound. He's going to be chained. He's going to be removed so that he would deceive the nations no more. I want you to understand something about this. This reveals Satan's character. This reveals what he's like, what he's all about. He has always been preoccupied with trying to deceive people, to get people to turn from God. He's, he's, gonna, he's been like that since he fell. He's like that now. He's going to continue to be like that all the way up until that time that he's going to be bound. But even though he has power, and he is a, he's outstanding in his ability and his powers because he uh, was the highest of God's creation before he fell. He does not have omnipotency. He is not the same as God. As this text tells us, God is going to designate an angel. I don't know which one. He's going to designate an angel to take Satan and to bind him to put him in this pit, and therefore he'll be out of the picture for a thousand years. Now there are some of our fellow uh, worshipers across America who are saying that this isn't a reality. Satan already is bound. There's no thousand years. Satan is nowhere to be found right now. And I go, are you kidding? Okay. Uh, But can't you imagine what world would be like without a Satan, without the demonic hordes around? And so it's a fantastic time because the first thing that's going to happen is the removal of Satan. Okay, and that's going to be the first event. Then he talked about the saints ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. So the second major event that we've talked about the last couple of weeks is the reign of the saints. Those who are following Jesus Christ will be helping him to rule and reign, to govern during the time. And we talked about last week what this will be like, what our environment will be like, what the animals will be like, what the natura, nature will be like, what the economics will be like, what the uh, situation socially will be like, how there's going to be purity and there's going to be one language and it's a wonderful, glorious time that's going to take place. In fact, there, we mentioned this Sunday night that there's going to be a one world religious uh, system that's put in place by Jesus where Jesus is going to have everybody come and worship him at the new millennium temple where Jesus Christ will call all people to gather regularly and there they will worship and there will be sacrifices reinstituted during this time. As we mentioned last week, those sacrifices are going to be like our communion service in memory of what Jesus did. Looking back, it will be a clear picture, a reminder of what Jesus did for all of us. But during that time, Jesus will rule from Jerusalem and he will make Israel the superpower It'll be the nation that the rest of the world will look to. And Jesus will be there. He will be in control from Jerusalem. And all the laws, all legislation, all, all you know, memos and edicts will go from Jerusalem as we read that out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord. For the law shall go forth out of Zion or Jerusalem. And Jesus will be there. You who are faithful may be helping him to rule over different parts of the world or different communities, counties, cities, things of that sort. But the main capital that we will be looking to is Jerusalem where Jesus is there in authority. When he is in authority, he's going to be a dictator. He's going to be ruling, a benevolent dictator, a righteous dictator, but he's going to be ruling with, with real authority. The Bible frequently uses, and this is just from the book of Revelation, that talks about ruling with the rod of iron. The idea is that Jesus will be in control. He is going to make sure that everything is done the way he wants, that people follow him, that people obey him, that people do as he wants, not as we want, not as we think. In fact, he's going to make it very clear that if anybody were to disobey him during that time, 
they are going to find out very, very, very quickly that it doesn't pay to disobey him. In uh, the book of Zechariah, chapter 5, you may want to do a study on this. If Zechariah is getting a vision of what the, what the millennial kingdom is like, and when he looks and sees, he sees this scroll, this scroll that has writing on both sides, and it's unfurled, it's already open. And he looks at this scroll, and it's hovering about, flying about in the sky, and as he describes the scroll, we get a couple of different details that are very important. This scroll is the exact dimensions of the tabernacle. This scroll has writing on both sides, just like the original Ten Commandments did. And this scroll has written all the different laws of God. And in this picture that he sees, this scroll goes about, and if somebody violates the law of God during that time, this scroll immediately goes to where they're at, and it examines those persons. It all of a sudden comes, shows up, and those who steal, those who, as the passage says, give false witness, they're cut off. So this is this scroll, whether symbolic or actual, this scroll is going to mete out punishment. People will have to obey Jesus. Now, will some people absolutely, totally try to disobey? Well, the most won't. Most everybody will conform. Most everybody will obey him. But, and if they don't, there's severe punishment. In fact, Jesus described in Zechariah chapter 14 that if you're called, all the people in that time period will be called to Jerusalem to worship. And if somebody says, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem, I'm not going to worship, I don't want to go to church on that day, then he says, what's going to happen if a family of Egypt go not up and come out, come to, the, uh, to Jerusalem, a plague will be upon them. So everybody during that time period, when I say everybody, almost the vast, vast majority of everybody will obey Jesus. They will go to worship. They will follow his rules. There will be some who absolutely rebel. The king shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with, the bre with his breath shall slay the wicked. So there may be some remote characters that all of a sudden rebel during that time. But most everyone, everybody will follow, will obey. They, they have to. If they don't, there's going to be quick punishment. And so that's going to be the idea. Now, some of you are thinking immediately the right question to ask. How is it anybody even could rebel during that time? When we go to heaven, don't we get new bodies? Don't we get transformed? Isn't our sin nature removed? The answer to that is yes. And how is it that everybody who goes into this kingdom, according to Matthew 25, everybody is born again who enters into the kingdom? How is it that that some of them might rebel? Do they lose their salvation? Do they walk away from their salvation? How is it that, that somebody could turn from being saved and getting a glorified body and all of a sudden be one of the wicked? Well, they don't. You won't. We have to understand that during this time period, there's going to be a whole group, new group of people born during this period. There's going to be a whole new population of individuals who didn't live in the tribulation, but they will be birthed in and during the millennium. And so here, let me give you a couple of passages that talk about it. This text is talking about the Jews who are going to be living in the kingdom. It says they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring. So some of the Jews are going to bear children during that time period. In fact, we read in Zechariah, he says, well, I whistle for them and gather them. I will have redeemed them and they shall increase like they were increased in the past. The idea is that there's going to be as many new Jews born as there have been throughout this whole period of time. 
not only will there be new Jews being birthed during that time period, there's going to be new groups of Gentiles birthed during that time period. It says, and it shall come to pass that you shall divide the lot of, the, of your inheritance to strangers, Gentiles, that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you. You say, well, wait a minute. Are we going to have babies? Some of you ladies are panicking right now. Are we going to be pregnant perpetually for a thousand years giving birth? Okay. No. No, we'll talk a little bit more about this this evening, but with our resurrection bodies, we, those who have resurrection bodies, they don't keep on procreating. However, there's a whole group of people that you've forgotten about. At the end of the tribulation, the Jesus Christ, when he comes back, there are still people on planet Earth. Remember, a whole bunch of them will follow Antichrist and turn their weapons to try to shoot Jesus out of the sky as he and we descend, Revelation 19. There's going to be people that are gathered in, in Jerusalem, nations gathered in battle against Jerusalem. Jesus Christ will come down from the sky and he will defeat those who are opposing him and trying to wipe out the Jews. But a third of the Jews will immediately, who are surviving up to this point, a third of them will be born again. There will be a remnant saved. And there's going to be other people around planet earth who did not um, follow in on this conspiracy. They weren't involved with it, that they, they were believers. Some of them did get persecuted and died, but many of them will have survived to the very end because they got born again for the witness of the 144,000, the angel, the two prophets. And so there'll be many people who will be saved during this time period, and they, some of them will survive, will be alive when Jesus comes back, both Jews and Gentiles. Well, remember we said two weeks ago, at that moment when he touches down, he has the Matthew 25 the judgment of the sheep and the goat. The sheep and the goat judgment is those who are alive at the end of the tribulation. Did they follow Jesus or did they follow Antichrist? And he will have all of those who were taking the mark of the beast, those who were anti-Israel, anti-Jews, try to help destroy the Jews, they will be cast into hell. Do you remember he says, you saw me naked, you saw me hungry, you did nothing? Then he's going to talk about those who saw him naked, saw him hungry, visited in prison. That is the idea they were to his kinsmen, to the Jews. They were favorable. Those people will go into the kingdom with their physical bodies. They will not have resurrected bodies. They go into the kingdom. They are able to birth children. All of a sudden their lifespan is, is expanding. There is good health. There is a good environment. There is no problem with economics, and all of a sudden these people who are having children, they don't have to worry about the size of the family because of economics. All of a sudden, they don't have to worry about having intense pain in childbearing like was part of the curse. All of a sudden, they don't have to worry about, okay, I'm going to only be here a few years. Remember, a person 100 years old is considered a child. If you're living several hundreds of years and you have children every two years... Think how many big your, how big your family is. I mean, your Christmas card list is huge. And so then your kids are having kids, and those kids are having kids, and you can see down several generations of kids. And nobody's worried about finances. Nobody's worrying about disease and illness. They're almost non-existent. Death is at a minimum. How big can the world population get? Massive. Massive. Now, remind you, those people born during that time period are born into a perfect kingdom. 
but they are born with a sin nature. They're still human beings. And as they're birthed with a sin nature, they have to obey Jesus. They're brought up in a culture where this is what you have to do. But they still have to come to a point where they personally have to accept Jesus as their Savior. So they're living in this perfect environment, and they're being exposed to Jesus, to the Word of God, and some of them may not get born again. Some of them may obey. They may do everything they're supposed to do. They may look the part, but they never personally repent of their sin, and they never ask Jesus to be their Savior. Is it possible that people could possibly be involved with Christianity and never be a true Christian? Is that possible? Could people go to church regularly and never get born again? But could people, could people follow the Word of God, keep the Ten Commandments, do everything they're supposed to do and never actually get saved? Is that possible? Well, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, he will say to those who say, Lord, did not we prophesy and do good works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never... Okay, so you're going to have all these people who during, this, during the millennium are birthed and they're hearing of Christ, they're seeing sacrifices that remind of Jesus, they even see Jesus. I mean, think about it. Is it possible for people to be seeing Jesus and never ever get saved? Is that possible? Well, they did it during his 30 years on earth. Could they be real close to him? Can somebody be really close to Jesus and see and touch and hear him and talk to him personally and not ever get born again? Judas. And so you have these people that what's going to happen is we read about what happens towards the end of the time. Let's pick up the story. It says in verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, we have the next event, the release of Satan. Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So Satan's loosed. And the Bible said, if we, oh, where's the verse? Um, where does it say he must be loosed? Uh, I'm in the previous verses. Help me out. Verse 3, thank you. After that, he must be loosed a little, a little season. Do you understand why Satan is loosed? Do you understand the, how this all fits together? Okay, the, the word must is day. It's, the normative word means it's an absolute necessity. Satan has to be loosed. Somebody after the morning service made a wise, uh, gave a wise question. He said, after that's all perfect, why would God even loose him? Let me explain. It's a must. It has to be done. Let me explain a couple things. One, after he is, he is loosed, and it's only for a little season, I want you to catch something. Satan never escapes on his own. He, he's kept there. He can't get out. He, it isn't um, you know, one of those escape rooms for Satan in the pit. He can't get out. But God allows him out for only a short time. What does that tell you? That Satan can't get out when God says you're bound. And when God says you can come out, you only get out for a short time. Who's in control? Okay, clearly the text is saying God's in control. Clearly, there's no mistake here. As well, what does this tell you about Satan? 
When Satan is released, what does he do? He immediately returns to what he did before, deceiving people, deceiving people. What does that tell you about him? I mean, seriously, think about this. When you would correct your children, give them a time out, do you anticipate and expect that they would change their behavior? Oh, some of you are not convincing on that. Okay, whoa. You want a change in behavior. That was why the time out came, okay? What does Satan do after being in prison for a thousand years? Same thing. Same thing. In other words, he never learns. He never learns. He is so corrupt, he is so evil, that what happens is he doesn't change at all. You know, some of us would learn from bad mistakes, wouldn't we? I was telling the group that when I was in college, I worked for a, a dealership, and in the dealership there was the accounting department where the gals would do all the paperwork, and there was a lady who was in charge of that department. And she was an older woman, mean, mean lady. Ooh, ooh. She was not only mean, but she was... You know, just, she just was, she was filled with herself. And so I walked in doing janitor work one day, and I hit it at the bad moment. They were talking about people guessing ages. And I walked in, and she's saying to the whole group of girls, nobody ever guesses my age right. You know, they just, you know, they never get it right. And she says, I'll prove it. Wayne, how old do you think I am? <laughs> 150 was my first thought, Okay. And, um, and I said, I'm not going to say. He says, no. How old do you think I really am? And I said, I'm just, you know, I'm stupid, but I'm not that dumb. Okay, I go, I'm not going to guess. If you don't guess, you're not getting a paycheck this week. Okay, I'll guess. So I ventured a number that I thought was a little bit low. It was her age. She was so mad. Somehow my paycheck got lost that week. Surprise. I learned, never even try to guess. You learn from mistakes. Satan's bound, gets out, never learns. Doesn't learn. He comes out and he is so bent. He is wicked. Folk, I don't care what people are telling you. What you read on the internet, what Hollywood does. Satan is not getting better. He is not reforming. He is not all of a sudden a nice guy. He is described in Scripture as a roaring lion going about to what? To devour. He's he's bad. He's bad. Well, what happens is Satan is and he must be released. Why does God risk this? Because all these people have been following Jesus. They've been obeying. Those people born during this time period, they had no choice but God is going to allow them to have a choice. They're going to get a choice now. Before, if they disobeyed, whammo. Now, Satan gets out, and Satan will start saying to them, God is unfair. God's made you obey. If you follow me, I will let you rule the world yourselves. Whatever he says, okay? And what will happen is people who have been following because it was convenient, will all of a sudden rebel. And the Bible says that the number of those who rebel and follow Satan against God are as the number of the sand of the sea. That means a lot. A lot. In fact, it says in the text that as they do the rebellion, 
that it says in verse 9, they go upon the, upon the breadth of the earth. They compass about the city where Jesus is, Jerusalem. So there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them who've been obeying Jesus because they, they felt they had to. But when given a choice, they don't want him anymore. They reject him. They don't want him to be their savior. They've never in their life repented of their sin and asked him to be their savior and Lord. And so they're going to have this rebellion, and so they'll come from all over, even the, the areas that in the past were called Gog and Magog, where there was, there was wickedness, and, and so they'll come, and they're going to attack. Then you have, so you have the release of Satan, you have the rebellion of the sinners, and they come and they have this battle. I, calling it a battle is kind of like silly, because watch what happens. It says in the text, they went up on the breath of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Didn't last long. God just responds. God wipes them out. Now before you think, oh, that's very harsh, you got to think of what these people knew, what they experienced. Their rebellion is heinous. We'll talk about that in a second. Then what happens, the next thing, is Satan is removed for good. He's done. It's over with. And it says that the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of the fire and brimstone where Antichrist and the false prophet have been now for the thousand years, and they are tormented day and night forever. So that's the events. What do we learn out of it? What do we learn? Okay, it's future. It's something we're going to see in the future but let's open our eyes clearly and say, what do we see about it right now? I think there's four different summaries we can make. Number one is this. It shows us that we can be sure. It shows us we should beware. It shows us that we should be about something. And it shows us that we should believe. Okay, let's, let's deal with the first one first. Be sure. Be sure of this. Be sure God is in control of all things at all times. Okay, that, the text reiterates this for us once again. Satan doesn't escape. Satan is let out because God is going to still remain control, but he's going to give men the chance to choose, which we'll see in a second. God has a plan that he's following. Satan must be released. This isn't an accident. God is never winging it. God is never going along and making up a plan as things go along. Our God is in control. No matter what Satan does, no matter what mankind does, it will not thwart the plans of God and the purposes of God. So you have this. God's not making any mistakes. Nothing gets out of control. I mean, seriously, have you ever seen some kids get loose from their parents and totally out of control? You ever see that? Okay. Satan is not, God, God doesn't let him out and Satan's running rampant. God is still in control. God is still in control. So our, our God is one that all events are leading, which gives me great peace in my heart right now. When I look at our country, when I look at the streets, when I don't look at the news anymore, okay, our God's in control. I know there's chaos, I know there's troubles, but my trust is not in Washington, D.C. or any politician. Our trust is in the Lord. In God we trust. Our God is not making mistakes. Do I want to see things change? I do. I want them to get better. I want my grandkids to have, a, have some of the things we experienced. But our God is not making a mistake. 
It is not, our God is in control. Okay? And control doesn't mean everything will be comfortable. It wasn't for Jesus, and it won't be for those who are his followers. I know God's in control. I also know this, God is just. This text reiterates the fact God is just. Some people have said, oh, why did God, why does God even allow evil? Okay, let me tell you why. Because when God creates a perfect environment, when he has everything just right, men still have a bent towards wanting to do their own thing. When Satan is let out, Satan is going to tempt these people and many of them will follow. Why does God even allow that to happen? Because these people have had to obey him. He is going to find out, is it from the heart or from the head? What did they do? Did they obey? Did they worship because they meant it or because they felt they had to? There are people who go to church today that go because they feel they have to, but they don't really mean it. And God is just. God is not forcing himself to say, oh, you know, he gives, gives choice. He's given you a choice. For whosoever shall call, he doesn't force you to get born again. He doesn't force you into a permanent relationship with him. He allows that to be a choice. He gives it very clearly. Here's what Jesus did. He loved you. He died for you. Jesus, here's what he can do for you. But he gives you a choice. He's going to give those people a choice at the very end. Follow Satan or follow God. In fact, God, God, for those of you who are born again, who have already accepted Christ, God doesn't force you into prayer. God doesn't force you to read your Bible. Does he make it wise to do, convenient? Does he set up scenarios that, that lean towards, yeah, I need to be in my Bible, but he doesn't force you. He doesn't force you to all of a sudden fast and pray. He wants it from your heart. If it was constantly being forced, it wouldn't be love on your part. You'd be robotic. And so God gives us choice. Is it a, is it a dangerous thing to give people a choice? Yes. Yes. Because some of those people who get a choice, they choose against God. But he says that he is going to give people free choice, free will. These people get an opportunity to express free will and they get a choice. God is just the same as he is with you. He gives you a, a choice, but it's your choice. What else I see in this passage is the idea that we need to beware. We need to beware of two things. One is Satan and one is self. What I mean by that is this. Satan has always been and forever will be evil. He is, he is in jail for a thousand years, doesn't learn, we already mentioned. His goal has been, continues to be, will be, turn people against God, and he doesn't care what the collateral damage is. He doesn't care what happens to the people as long as they follow him. He doesn't care what happens to you as long as you would fall into his temptations. He is evil, he is vile, he is wicked, he is our enemy. In fact, we know all the way from the Garden of Eden, his goal has been to deceive people. 
He deceives people by discrediting God. Do you remember how it unfolded? God had provided Adam and Eve everything they needed, everything that they wanted. But he said, just don't eat those two trees, that they shouldn't be there. And so what happened? Eat the one tree, the other one he'd remove later. But it's the idea, don't eat the tree. Everything else, he gave them all the other trees. And Satan comes up and says, oh, God's unfair. God's holding back from you. God isn't letting you have everything that, that you, you would want. And if you do, just think about it. If you could eat of that tree, you shall be as gods and you shall know good and evil. Well, there was truth to that, wasn't there? They all of a sudden got to know evil. And so here he is deceiving and again he's going to do the same thing. Can you imagine what he says to those those numbers of people who have been listening to Jesus, following Jesus, living in his kingdom, enjoying all the benefits, but they have never from the heart given themselves to Christ. And so all of a sudden he says, hey, you follow me and you'll be able to take over and man, you'll be able to do your own thing and you won't have all these rules to live by and just think of all the fun you'll have. Do you think anybody would buy that one? And so there he is. Evil. By the way, you do realize he is deceiving today. Yes, no? He's deceiving in the church. In the church, he's got people, where Paul writes to the epistles, warning people who go to church, who saying, it doesn't make a difference what you believe. Everything is okay. Just be sincere. Well, according to these texts, they are Satan's messengers disguised as light who say that. We read in scriptures that, that, that some people say lying isn't so bad, and we hear it today. But Jesus said in John chapter 8, Satan is the father of all lies. We, we find out that people think it's okay to gossip. In scripture, they had people in the church who were going around gossiping and becoming busybodies. Paul writes and says, who are following after Satan. Very seldom do I hear people say gossiping is following Satan outside of scriptures. Deception. In the Bible, there was people who were saying sexual immorality isn't that bad. A guy was shacking up with his father's wife, and they was like, oh, that's not so bad, that's not so bad. Even today, some people would say, well, we, we aren't as bad as what people used to do. We're, we're more civilized, even though we're not real moral. But according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, this is turning your flesh over to Satan. The deception that people just underestimate the immor- that immorality is bad. It's damaging. Well, we have people who, like Ananias and Sapphira, they might show up at church. They might pretend and sing the songs and pretend and have the Bibles and say, I love God, I love God, I love God, and oh, I'm going to give something to God's work. But when Ananias and Sapphira pretended they were so spiritual and they lied about what they were giving so that they were thought well of by the group, the apostle rebukes them and says, Satan has filled your heart. We, we find out that in Ephesians 4, he says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, lest you give place to the devil, to Satan. We, we find out that people who say, I'm not going to forgive. That person offended me. That person hurt my family. I'm not going to forgive. And he says, beware, because we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. 
the lack of forgiveness. We have people who say, well, you know, I'm going to go to church, I'm a good person, I'm going to be baptized, that's going to get me to heaven. I don't need to believe on Jesus by making him my personal savior. I'll make Jesus plus these other things to get me into heaven. And 2 Corinthians 4 says, Satan hath blinded you from the truth. Where Jesus said, repent and believe for I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Does Satan deceive today? Beware. Beware. But you have to be careful because you got a problem, all of us do, with our own selves. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Nobody had to teach us to lie. Nobody had to teach us to be selfish. Nobody had to teach us to lose our temper. Nobody has to teach a toddler to say, mine, mine, mine. Rather, you have to teach them to do just the opposite. Why is that? Because we are born with sin in our hearts. We all have a sin nature. These, these people who revolt, you look at them and go, how could they revolt after a thousand years of a perfect environment that Jesus gave them? World peace like never before, long life. He gave them good health, bountiful provisions. He gave them great jobs. He gave them great families. He, he answered their questions face to face, and they even got to see him in person when they go to Jerusalem. How could they revolt? Because they still had a sin nature. Everyone is born with a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, they have a bent towards evil. We all do. And so we have to be careful of that. We have to be cautious of that, that we don't get blinded by greed or selfishness or pride. And it happens to us so quickly. Do you remember when you were sitting in a church like this and you heard some raving maniac like me talking and saying that we are given to sin and your first thought was, I'm not so bad. Not me. We deceive, our sin nature deceives us, blinds us to our disobedience, our selfishness, our arrogancy. So you, you, we look at these people and we go, what is wrong with those people? How could they do that? Well, may I flip the coin totally? I know we're not living in the kingdom, but you who are born again, you who are brothers and sisters with me, we have something that should cause us to know better. We have experienced God's forgiveness. We have experienced the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. We have fellowship with Christ at any moment we want. We can just stop and talk to Jesus. We have experienced the emptiness of unbelief and what happens when you come to Christ and that joy, that peace that passes all understanding. We have access to God at any time we wish how is it we give in to our sin nature? Our sin nature is potent. It's a problem. It's powerful. It gets us to argue at home. It gets us to lose our tempers. It gets us to curse and cuss. It gets us to lie. It gets us to have illicit thoughts to hang on to a bitterness, to not love the way we're supposed to, to not lead our kids at times because we're just too tired, 
to disobey our parents? Beware. Beware. We mentioned two others, be about and believe. Let me wrap up with these two. Let me ask you a question. What is man's greatest need? Is it education? Is it good health? Is it long life? Is it having more technology than what we have right now? Is it world peace? Is it, you know, for some religious groups and some cultures, knowing what their ancestors want, is it a perfect environment? I propose to you that as I look at future history, those people in that time period who are born during their, that time period have all of this. They have all of those things, but it didn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy for many of them who rebel. What is man's greatest need? The greatest need that anyone and everyone has is not getting things on the outside squared away. It's getting things on the inside squared away. It's coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and having a relationship with Him. You gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul, he says, how tragic. It is being what God has created you to be, a person who has fellowship with him, which has been broken because of our sin nature, which needs to be resolved, but it can only be done by Jesus Christ, by asking him to forgive you and to give you eternal life. Okay, that's the greatest need, according to scriptures then what should be our greatest investment of time and energy to help others? Education? Technology? Medicines? And by the way, aren't you glad for education? Technology? Health? Medicines? All good and noble things, but what should be our priority, concern, and activity towards others? Helping them to get to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. If that is their greatest need, our greatest responsibility is to be the ones to carry the gospel to them. To share the gospel with them so they can know Christ. Now, I say all that, and I'll wrap up with this. You need to believe. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Not just up here, but here. You see, all these people living during this thousand-year kingdom who end up rebelling, they knew Jesus here. They even saw Jesus, or will see him. I put it in the future tense. They obey his commandments. They do what, they, what he tells them. They, they will say he's king, he's Lord, with their lips. They, they will be people who gather to worship regularly when he calls them to Jerusalem. They are doing mostly good things during that time. Well, actually, if they do anything bad... There's discipline. They, they are with others who believe. They even go and be in the presence of Jesus, and yet they never personally believed for themselves. And that's what we need to come to, the reality. I need to believe that Jesus died, buried, resurrected, and ascended up into heaven to give me eternal life, to restore me to what God created me to be, and Jesus did that by sacrificing himself and rising from the dead 
and giving a true offer that he paid for. Complete, total forgiveness of sins. Bought, paid for, ready to hand out to whosoever repents and calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's there. Have you ever believed for yourself, not, not for the rest of your family, not for your spouse, not for your parents, not for your kids. Have you believed for you? And Jesus, he's done so much for you. I, I was reading two story of a fellow a few years back, one of those, those noble policemen who he was teaching in Salt Lake City in a library, teaching some officers some different lessons, and they were on break. And when they took a break, he's standing out in the hallway just visiting. He sees something down there at the end of the hallway of the library that looks odd. So he goes a little bit closer, and then he realizes what's happening. There's a kook, crazy man, holding a gun. And this man is getting a group of people as hostages, collecting them and trying to get every one of them into a, a room there at the library so he can hold them hostage. Well, this officer did just the heroic thing. He got down the hall. When the guy wasn't looking, he became part of the group. He put himself as one of the hostages inside that room. He's held there with the other hostages for a number of hours. The, the, the conversation with the police outside, it's not going anywhere. The, the gunman, he's getting more and more uh, crazy. And, un, you know, just it's, and when a moment came... For Mr. Prescott to act, he acted, subdued the gunman, and took him out. Hero. Did a heroic thing. Made himself one of the hostages to rescue the hostages. Should I tell you about real heroism? Eternal heroism? Jesus Christ became flesh for us. He then became sin for us. He became one of us He allowed himself to be punished like we deserved so that we could get the ultimate freedom. Jesus gave his life so you could experience freedom. What have you done with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? In the future, we know that a number of people will say, eh, we're going to go on our own. Would you dare today say, I don't need you. I don't want you. Really? Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would would realize this is an eternal decision. This is the most important decision they can make for not just this life, but for the life that is eternal. And friends, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if you have never yet called upon Jesus to be your Savior, won't you do that this morning? Here in the quietness of this room, won't you pray? Won't you ask Jesus, who died, buried, and resurrected for you, to forgive you of your sin? To take it all away? To give you the gift of eternal life? Forgiveness that lasts forever and ever and ever. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, you could pray here right now. You could pray at home, those of you who are watching. You could pray something like this. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner and I do not deserve to go to heaven. Forgive me of my sins. I realize you died, buried, resurrected, and ascended for me to have forgiveness. Please 
Give me that forgiveness. Give me your gift of eternal life right now. If you've never prayed a prayer like that, from your heart, with your own words, won't you do it right now? Won't you ask Jesus right now to forgive you? Your heads are still bowed and your eyes are closed. I can't see you at home, but at the same time, here you are. And you say, Pastor, I just prayed a prayer like that. I just asked Jesus to give me that gift of eternal life. Well, I would like to close our service thanking God for that one, two, three, whatever there is. Not by calling out your name, but just by saying, God, thank you that there was one here today that did that, or two or three. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and you'd say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. When you pray Thanksgiving, would you just include me as a number? And thank God for, the gift, for hearing me. Just put up your hand and take it right back down. Anybody else? Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for responsive people. Thank you for this hope that we have. But God, with hope comes responsibility. Help us to walk away thinking through some of these thoughts and acting upon them. Give these folk the bravado, the good bravado, the bravery that they need to follow you to the best of their abilities and use them mightily, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.